I was um, supposed to give this teaching last week as David knew because I called him at 8.30 and I said, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm sick, which would have had implications for him pulling together a teaching in like a half hour. I actually made it to church, realized I couldn't do it and went back home. I had had a stomach bug that week. But I have to say that I'm not exactly sure. I have been doing this now for 20-some years, well, here for 20-some years. Um, I've never missed a Sunday for sickness. That's neither here nor there. But I'm not sure how much the topic matter itself that I'm talking about um, today actually affected me. Um, for all kinds of understandable reasons. Um, but it's personal to me. I grew up um, in anti-Semitism. And so it's not that I haven't referred to it or alluded to it, but talking more directly about it kind of gets to me. Um, so there you know, David started by saying, um, AD was supposed to teach on anti-Semitism, but she's nauseated and isn't here, and so I got like 100 texts asking me how my nausea was. Um, <laughs> thank you for caring. <laughs> and I'm doing much better. All right, so we're gonna get started this morning, and we're gonna say a prayer together. It's a short prayer, so you can stay seated. We're gonna project it. Um, Try to project it. Okay. It's the Hebrew on top, and then the translation, and then the English on bottom. So the Hebrew, you can repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Now we can say the English together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, we just prayed the first line of a prayer called the Shema, and the prayer goes on to invite us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and might, and uh, it comes straight out of Deuteronomy, and it is prayed three times a day by observant Jews. The Shema is the centerpiece um, of Jewish prayer. So when I was a kid, we went to public school, got out at 3.15, walked to the synagogue, and then Hebrew school would start at 4 and go till about 7. And in Hebrew school, when we were about 8, we had to memorize the Shema, which is much longer than the one line. It takes 5 or 10 minutes to say all in Hebrew. We were incentivized with money. <laughs> I grew up, as most of you know, in Skokie, which is a suburb 
um, of Chicago, and I keep learning more about um, my village. So I knew that we were a Jewish community. I knew that one in six of my Jewish neighbors had numbers in their arms, were Holocaust survivors. Um, but I did not know at that time that next to Tel Aviv, um, Skokie, my city had the most survivors of anywhere in the world. Um, we were considered a sanctuary um, city. So before uh, the Holocaust, the majority of Jews were in Europe, and now they're in America and South America. Um, I remember being 12 or 13 years old and sitting in our upstairs den with my mother on our 1970s burnt orange couch on green shag carpeting. Um, and watching a made-for-TV movie about the Holocaust that was super graphic and super realistic that I'm not sure that I've recovered from to this day. The movie ended, and my mom just left the room. We never, ever talked about the experience of seeing the movie when I was... 50, so about 15 years ago, um, I read an article in a Chicago paper that someone had sent me, um, and the journalist was also 50. The journalist was my age, and he described that it was only then that our parents' generation, who by then were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, could begin to tell their Holocaust stories. Those who had experienced the camps, and those like my parents, who sat traumatized, glued to their radio day after day as their brethren across the ocean were being slaughtered. Today, there's a Holocaust museum in Skokie. But when um, I was a kid, it was just too painful. I think that all of us kids were messed up one way, or another, we were swimming in a sea that we did not understand, and there was absolutely nowhere to talk about it. We were many in our community, but we were few in our country. We believed we mattered, but we knew two-thirds of Jewry had just been murdered, two-thirds of our collective us. We had benefits of being white, but we couldn't purchase property in places in our city. We couldn't join clubs in our city. This morning, we're going to look at um, a story often called The Good Samaritan. We're going to look at it through the lens of anti-Semitism. We'll ask who is our neighbor, what does it look like to love our neighbor, and see if we can't find um, some concrete application. So Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, so an expert in the Mosaic law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So whatever we make of this question, it is not being asked out of curiosity or sincerity. It's not being asked to get some personal help. It's asked in some way to set up Jesus, to trap Jesus, to 
see how Jesus is going to respond um, to this question publicly. What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So Jesus responds to the expert's question with a question. In doing so, he's also going from the one being on trial. Now the man has to answer his own question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as your friend. So he's rightfully quoting the Shema. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So two things to note here. One is that Jesus changes the language. The expert says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, do this and you'll live. Live translates to live fully, uh, to flourish, um, to live wholeheartedly. Um, so it's not clear if he's making a statement uh, about eternal life, but at the very least, what he's saying is this is how you can live today. Like maybe you don't even have to think about just getting eternal life. This is how to live today. Okay. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? So first the person wants to test Jesus and expose something about Jesus which doesn't go well, and now he wants to justify himself. So to make it clear to everybody that in fact he is worthy of eternal life. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by on the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of, you do you, which of the, these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So it's almost as if he can't say the word Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay. So we have an expert in the law who's trying to set up Jesus to expose him publicly one way or another. He asks Jesus about eternal life, attempting to trap him. Jesus flips the question. Suddenly the expert is on the defense. The expert shows his knowledge of the law, quoting the Mosaic law. Jesus says, do that, which the expert, uh, which implies that the expert is not already doing it. Um, and implicating, definitely messing with the guy. So the expert feels like he needs to know, let everybody know, wait a minute, I am worthy of eternal life. 
I follow the letter of the law. So he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which is a pretty vague question. But I think he assumes he knows what Jesus is going to say, how Jesus is going to respond. Your neighbors are the people who live by you. Your neighbors are those in your community who maybe need a little bit extra help. Your neighbors are the folks you've worshipped with your whole life. Your neighbors look like you. When Jesus answered as expected, then the legal expert would say, exactly. I've done these things all my life. I followed the letter of the law. But instead we get Jesus' story that many of us are familiar with, a story where someone's lying on the ground beaten and robbed, two people who would have looked like the expert crossed to the other side of the street, a Samaritan, so essentially someone who the expert would have judged, despised, is super helpful. And by this point, everything is flipped on its head. For the man who's beaten, his neighbor is the one who can help. Martin Luther King says the religious leaders who passed the man were asking the question, what's going to happen to me if I stop and help that person over there? He says the Samaritan was asking the question, what's going to happen to that person in need if I don't stop to help them? Well, by the end of the story, Jesus has flipped the question, who is my neighbor to what does it look like to love my neighbor? How should I be a neighbor? If there's an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus seems to be saying, show mercy to everyone, whether or not you know they're your neighbor. The person who was beaten in our story was stripped naked. So there were no clothes to signify who this person was, Jew, Samaritan, wealthy, poor, hard to tell if you're my neighbor or not. Jesus says, show mercy. So of course the question is, how do we respond to those we encounter in need? Do we turn the other way? Do we cross the street? Do we close our eyes? What do we do? And in a world where there's so much pain and suffering, how far do we reach and who do we care for? Well, as it turns out, sometimes our neighbors are literally down the street. So on Christmas Eve, David and I were surprised with a sweet and meaningful gift. Rabbi Esther Hugenholz, who is the rabbi in the synagogue just literally down the road. Do you all know that synagogue? Um, Esther, Rabbi Esther came over and she had baked challahs. Um, you can show a picture okay, of a challah that's a braided egg bread, and she gave um, one for David's family and my family um, 
for a Christmas present. Challahs um, are what we eat on Sabbath, on the Jewish Sabbath. So when my kids were younger, we celebrated Sabbath, which we would call Shabbos, and the Jewish um, Sabbath is from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. And on Fridays, Friday afternoons, I and whichever my kids were around, sometimes people in the community, we would bake challah to have for that night. Often we'd have friends over from the community, from sanctuary, and we would have a Shabbos uh, dinner. We actually used those challahs for communion for many years. Um, at church here. In any case, it meant a lot to us that Rabbi Esther um, brought these challahs for us on Christmas Eve. So a few weeks ago, many of you know that there was yet another attack on a synagogue, a rabbi, and um, a handful of congregants were held hostage in their synagogue in Texas. After several brutal hours, thank God, they were able to make a daring and risky escape. In the 1970s, when I was in high school, um, Neo-Nazis wanted to march through our city. Um, this was, of course, a calculated march because they could get the most bang for their buck. Um, obviously, all the Jews in Skokie were terrorized. Um, there's really no words to describe what it felt like um, for our neighbors um, who had already been through this. Um, once, rabbis at that time were in Skokie, were preaching peace, um, following Dr. King and Gandhi, saying we just have to respond with peace. And the survivors were saying there is no way in hell that we're going to respond with peace. We did that in the 1930s. That rally did not end up happening, well, at least there were a couple thousand Jews and our Jewish allies counter-protesting and just a handful of neo-Nazis. That said, when there is a shooting in Pittsburgh synagogue, killing 11 people and injuring six more, or when neo Nazis parade down streets of Charlottesville and when a rabbi and several worshipers are held hostage in their own place of worship, it sends shivers up Jewish people's spine. It sends shivers up my spine. After the Texas situation, um, I sent Rabbi Esther this email. I wrote, hi, sweet friend. I think of the Ecclesiastes writer. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. 
sometimes our world can seem beautiful. But often it's the dark side that is revealed. All love for you and yours and all our Jewish brothers and sisters. Love. And she wrote me back this. Dear Adie, there's been a lot of discussion among my rabbinic colleagues and lay Jews too about the relative silence from our interfaith partners. Not just mine, but in other parts of the country too, in response to Colleyville. A lot of Jews feel alone, scared, and isolated. I'm not particularly fearful, but I am angry. Angry at anti-Semitism, angry at how the intersecting challenges of the pandemic and increasing anti-Semitism in our country thwarts my mission to bring Torah to our aching world. I feel like I cannot live to the fullness of my Judaism during such hostility and isolation. And it absolutely breaks my heart. When I dropped off challah to you and David, I noticed your church doors are open. All I needed to do was to give a gentle push. You know what I felt in that moment? Jealousy and envy. Because our doors used to be open for all to enter. The Pittsburgh massacre locked them. Now we are layering security measure upon security measure on our synagogue, and it's affecting our collective Jewish soul. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. I hold fast to God and Torah, but the grief and hardship and heartache is real in friendship and in love. Esther. This is one more quote from Rabbi Esther. This was taken from the Press Citizen after Colleyville, so maybe some of you happened to read it, but she put in um, an opinion piece after the hostage situation, and I'm just gonna read a portion of it. She says, we're scared, we're worried, we're angry, we're exhausted. We have to make calculations and investments to keep our Jewish community safe from hatred and violence. Protecting ourselves takes all our emotional oxygen in the room and leaves us focused. Less on all our Torah calls us to be in the world and more on the logistics of security. We may look over our shoulder, worry at an unknown entity near the synagogue, switch on the alarm, review camera footage, evaluate the safety of our children at worship and in Sunday school. It is not how we Jews want to live. It is not how we should live. So how do we respond to all this and what does this mean for sanctuary. Um, so I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that we don't usually personalize a teaching so much, but occasionally we do. 
And this is one of those times I've been specific in naming anti-Semitism in particular in one synagogue that happens to be close to us, but it's not that we're choosing X over Y or anti-Semitism over racism over anything else. It's that we were walking down a road and we came upon someone who was harmed. And we have choices now how to respond. So for our takeaways, I'll go from more general to more specific. In general, Jesus says, show mercy to those in need. Our hands-on faith effort is designed to do that in our community, but the truth is, with the advent of COVID, our hands-on faith effort has been limping along. We are partnering with many organizations financially, so that is great. Our giving hasn't changed or diminished at all um, since the onset. Um, of COVID, but our ability to volunteer hands on faith, which we were so proud of and we loved so much as something that was in the DNA of our community, that um, has been so greatly diminished. Even the opportunities were so diminished over COVID, but our bandwidth was um, diminished. Everything was diminished. Um, our prayer, of course, is that as COVID winds down this year, God willing, um, to make hands on faith as robust as it was two years ago. Number two, we take um, Jesus' words personally um, for um, ourselves. Recently, um, Tom and I have personally been exposed to the devastating impact of poverty. A relative of someone close to us was actually murdered. Um, and the pain we've witnessed is unimaginable. It is unspeakable. The cost of whiteness in our country, the ongoing discrimination against black people. And Tom and I find that ourselves faced with innumerable questions. How do we love these particular neighbors? How do we understand our own role in this, our privilege that creates a sweet white picket fence around our lives until it doesn't. And number three, we identify with different people in the parable. Sometimes, for example, we are the person who was beaten and robbed, and we are looking for mercy, and we're often surprised from where it comes from. When I was a child, I'd get really sick with asthma. It was my blessed German next door neighbor, the one who was an outcast in our neighborhood, the one who was mocked and mistreated, who would come over every time I got sick and give me treatments he learned in medical school in Germany before the war. Bill and Ria Balswhite were my neighbors. And here, finally, we get really specific. Agudas Achim, that is the synagogue down the road from us. They are our neighbors. We're blessed to have a synagogue down the road. David and I are blessed by our friendship with Rabbi Esther. They're literally a couple hundred yards from us. 
They are a local, a religious body in our local community, and they experience ongoing threat of violence to agree that likely we never will. The measures that they have to take to increase safety are necessary, practical, and expensive. Tom and David and I met with the leaders of the synagogue um, last week to talk about safety and security, to ask how we could support each other, but likely how we could support them if the need um, were to arise. It was a sobering meeting in a gesture to help the synagogue, we made a decision to donate $200 a month to the synagogue, to Agudas Achim, as part of Sanctuary's tithe. And we're choosing to do this on an ongoing base. We're choosing to do this forever so that our support doesn't end up being tied to episodes of anti-Semitic violence in the world but rather it's stable and it is based on our enduring friendship with this community. And I'm so grateful that we can make a choice to do that. Finally, the story of the Good Samaritan makes me grateful. It makes me grateful for our Christian tradition. When I first came to faith, as a young woman, my theology was all tied up with getting saved like the expert in the law. I wanted to know what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus' death and resurrection what was, was what was preached the most, that Jesus died for my sin and that Jesus rose again. But I've come to realize that Jesus lived. And he lived in that whole living, flourishing way that he talked about with the expert. Like this one short parable could keep us going for a long, long time. I am proud and grateful to be part of the Jesus tradition where we are invited to live lives attuned to the world around us, where we are invited to creatively and generously engage with it as we go. Perhaps we can identify with the Samaritan as he was described as a traveler on a journey heading somewhere. God, may we learn from our friends and from our enemies. May we ask, as Dr. King invites us, what will happen if we don't stop and help? May we recognize those who offer us mercy every day. And may we be good neighbors to our Jewish brothers and sisters down the road. Amen. I made it through that. I love you guys. Who said that?
<laughs> Thanks, Becky. I'm assuming you're speaking on behalf of everybody. Thank <laughs> you.